just the, the, the likelihood that this would happen is, is it's just not very likely, right? Uh, but they proclaim a message about a crucified, risen Christ. They demonstrate that message with healings and exorcisms and loving one another well, uh, even caring for the most vulnerable. And, and out of that proclamation and demonstration of the gospel come tens of thousands of people becoming Christians. Uh, and we see that primarily in Jerusalem at the b- very beginnings of the book of Acts, and it starts to, to kind of overflow into some other regions, Judea, Samaria. But we really, at first, we don't see it turning into this movement that Jesus predicted uh, several places in the New Testament, but, but one of those places is the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, which is like the region that Jerusalem is found in Samaria, which is the region right next door, but then the end of the earth. And honestly, you just you don't see a lot of people having prayer meetings and strategy sessions about how we're going to reach the end of the earth. Doesn't seem to be much concern about that. And so in God's providence, what we see is that the Christians in Jerusalem do leave. They do get scattered, but the reason they get scattered is because persecution breaks out. We see the the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And after that, they they have more persecution. And so Saul begins to take people, dragging them out of their house and and incarcerating them because of their belief in Jesus. And it causes people to to scatter, to to go to other regions. Um, But what we find in Acts 11, verse 19, is that those that were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So even when they scatter, they're only talking to people that look like them, dress like them, talk like them, that are part of their, their culture. Now, we don't want to be too hard on these folks. We've, we've done similar things. Maybe you've been in a different culture. Maybe you've traveled down the highway to a different culture, or you've traveled you know, to another country, and when you see someone in that culture uh, that, that, that stands out because they look like you and they sound like you and they dress like you, you feel very comfortable just going right up to them and talking to them. If I'm on the tee in Boston and I see someone with a University of Texas sweatshirt and a Longhorn emblem, I feel very comfortable going over to them and saying, hey, are you from Texas? Did you go to UT Austin? There's like hardly any social barriers for me to step across that when I see someone that's from where I grew up that's in that culture. But when that kind of refusal to move out of culture and toward the other causes the sabotage of gospel mission, now that's a problem. And that's what we have here. As folks aren't willing to step across those, those social barriers in order to get the gospel to those who make up the end of the earth. Until verse 20, chapter 11. And what we're going to see in verse 20 is the beginning of a movement. And I'm not going to really define that yet as we go. It'll make more sense what a movement is. But we're going to look at seven truths regarding the making of a movement. Seven truths. That's right, I got seven points today. The sermon had three points on Thursday, and by last night it turned into seven points, but some of them are very short, so don't worry. 
Acts 11, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Praise God for these people from Cyprus and Cyrene. Now, these are, are Jews. Now, they're from Gentile regions, so it probably was more comfortable for them to at least talk to Gentiles, but for them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Gentiles was a big step, and even more for them to know that if these guys become Christians, they're going to become part of the people of God. And so this is a seismic shift in their understanding of who the people of God are, that they can be made up of anyone, all the nations. As long as as they, they trust in Christ for salvation and follow Him as their Lord, they're now part of the church. And these people from Cyprus and Cyrene, they reach across those social barriers, those cultural barriers, and they give the gospel to those who are in these regions. Now, this is the first truth about the making of a movement. It requires the witness of ordinary Christians. If it's just the key leaders, just the the professional Christians that are getting paid to do ministry, if they're the only ones doing disciple-making, the only ones that are are giving a gospel witness, it does not become a movement. It becomes very centralized, and you grow merely by adding more people. You you don't multiply into a movement. There's a great book on on movement and, and how ideas spread called The Starfish and the Spider by Braffman and Beckstrom. And it uses this analogy of of a centralized idea, which is the spider, versus a decentralized idea, which is the starfish. So if if, if, if something is centralized, the only thing you need to do to snuff it out is just get rid of the head, right? It's like a spider. You squash the head, the legs die. But a starfish, you cut the leg off, it becomes another starfish. You cut the other leg off, it becomes another starfish. And the more you, you, you try to, 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 to get rid of this starfish, the more it proliferates. That's a movement. That's a movement. And that's what we start to see here. We see a decentralization from just a Jerusalem-centered kind of Christianity to, to now we're beginning to see, and we will eventually see in, uh, in, in the end of this uh, text, we got, we're going to have two sending centers now. Not just Jerusalem, but we're going to also see one at Antioch. And God seems pleased with this. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I mean, Jesus told them, he said, the Holy Spirit is going to assist you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. He wasn't kidding. The Holy Spirit was was at the ready. It was like the Holy Spirit was just waiting for somebody to talk to some Gentiles. And the minute they, they, they professed the gospel to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit was like, I'm all over that. Right? And, and what Luke, the, the phrase he uses is the hand of the Lord. I love this. It's not like the Lord was just present. It wasn't like he was just off to the side, aloof, kind of watching. Like, oh, look at those Christians doing the right thing. You know, thumbs up. No, he's like heavily involved. He's getting his hand, at least one hand dirty, right? He's, he's at work in the hearts and lives of Gentiles as that gospel is being proclaimed. Notice what they do that causes the hand of the Lord to be at work. They preached Jesus. Don't you love that? They preached Jesus. 
They preached the person and work of, of Jesus. They, they didn't just preach like a code, right? Here's a list of things that you do and a list of things that you don't do. They didn't just preach some sort of, of, of a, a religious ritual, right? Now, Christianity has ethics and Christianity has rituals, that, that certainly, but that's not what's at the heart of it. What's at the heart of it is Jesus. And so the, these ordinary Christians, they get to Cyprus, Cyrene, and Antioch, they, they, they preach Jesus. This is the, the, the second truth about the making of a movement. You preach Jesus. You preach Jesus. They weren't just nice people. They didn't just say, let's go to Antioch and be nice people. And then they'll see how nice we are. And they'll go, oh, I want to be a Christian because they're so nice. No. I'm sure they were nice people. I'm sure they demonstrated the gospel with, with kindness and with, with truth-telling and with caring for the vulnerable. Absolutely. But they preached Jesus. They told them about his person. They told them about his work. And these were folks that were not looking for the Messiah. They didn't know anything about the Bible. And yet, the gospel message still was the means by which God saved these people. We preach Jesus. So ordinary Christians preaching Jesus. This goes from being an epidemic to a pandemic. Right? This is no longer just, again, centralized in Jerusalem. Now we've got another sending center at the church of Antioch. So we go on. We find out that Jerusalem's not, is a little skeptical about whether or not this is legitimate. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Jerusalem's skeptical. They send Barnabas to check it out. They sent the right guy. Barnabas is the right guy for the job. Now, if you remember back, the first time we heard about Barnabas was back in Acts chapter 4, and he was selling a field that he owned and giving 100% of the proceeds to the church. Just hand it off to the apostles, say, I don't know what, what the needs are, but here it is. Take it, use it however you think is best. And then in chapter 9, we see Barnabas uh, taking Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, who had just become a Christian, and no one wanted to talk to him because they were scared of him. And Barnabas takes Saul to the apostles and says, hey, this guy's legitimate. He's legitimate. He's a real Christian, and he's been professing the gospel, and you need to take him seriously. And he goes to bat for Saul. And now we've got him showing up in a Gentile context where folks have a lot of baggage. Their, their lives are a wreck. I mean, they're having to go through a complete transformation of, of who they were to who Christ wants them to be. And when Barnabas sees that, he's glad. He's glad. I don't know if there's anything more joy-producing than seeing new converts, seeing new people becoming Christians. Next week, we're going to be doing baptisms. We'll be out at Puffer's Pond. Hopefully, it will be sunny next week. But rain or shine, we'll be out there in the 55-degree water out there in Puffer's Pond at 4 o'clock. I hope you'll come out, and we're going to see some folks baptized who are professing their faith. Now, some of them have been Christians for a while and just haven't been baptized, but some are new Christians. And we're going to hear some of their stories on Sunday morning. We'll hear some of the stories out, out there at Puffer's Pond. But, but it's so joy-producing to hear that. This Friday night, I was at Meet Mercy House, and 
I was, I was talking to people at my table, and I was hearing them tell their stories of how they'd become Christians. And so I had one had become a Christian through the witness of their family, another that had gone to a, a camp with their friend, and then they, she was telling how she had become a Christian at that camp, and another through the witness of a friend, another who had been in uh, drug detox, had no understanding of the gospel, bumped into a staff worker uh, that was there who wasn't even a counselor, wasn't really there to, to do like therapy or counseling with anyone, was just there as a staff worker and was a Christian, shared the gospel with him, took him to a church with him, and he became a Christian and totally free from, from drug addiction. And I mean, I left Friday night. Here I am Friday night. It's 930 at night. I just taught a three and a half hour class. I was amped up. I couldn't sleep. And it was, I was just had so much joy. Because just hearing the work of God in people's lives, converting them from the darkness to the light. And I, this is what we see in, in Barnabas. He's so excited. He's so happy. And why is he doing all this crazy stuff, right? Why, why is it that he's willing to sell a field and give away the money from the proceeds? Or why is he willing to take a chance on Saul, who was a persecutor of the church? Why is he willing to look at a bunch of crazy Gentiles with all their baggage and, and be glad? Well, because he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. This is the, the third part of the, the truth about making of a movement. You've got to follow the Spirit. You've got to trust the initiation of the Spirit. Now, throughout this series, we've talked about that. don't want to go too far into that. But it's essentially yielding to the Spirit's initiation, trusting what the Spirit is, is initiating with the Christian. And Barnabas has been saying yes to the Spirit all along. And the more that he says, says yes, the more the Spirit says, whoa, I can use you. Let me, let me initiate with you more. That's what it means to be full of the Spirit. And so here he is standing there seeing these new Gentile converts, and he's, he's glad. He's also giving them instruction. I'm sure they needed a lot of instruction. They need to be taught how to pray. They need to be taught how to, how to understand the Bible, how to give generously, how to be sexually pure, how to relate well inside the church, how to relate well outside of the church, they were renouncing their old way of life. It was a radical transformation and embracing a completely new Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life. They were dying and coming alive. That's one of the things you see in when people get baptized. Is they're saying, I'm dying to my old life, my old self, and becoming alive because of my belief in the gospel and the power of the spirit that's at work in my life. And again, this, this is... Jesus-centered. It's Christ-centered. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit gets excited about, is when we, we point to Christ, and He shows up in power. This is why we're, we're always talking about Jesus. In, in every sermon, we, we talk about Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We, we, we remember Jesus when we take the bread and the cup. I was talking to somebody last week who, who was talking about my preaching, and they said, your preaching is kind of like a Hallmark movie. I was like, Really? Like, I didn't know how, how to take that right at first. And then she said, no, 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 what I mean is we always know what the ending is going to be like. And we never get tired of it. Right? And you're right. Jesus is going to be the hero at the end of every sermon. He's going to be the center of every sermon. Because I know that preaching Christ is going to help those of you that are not Christians to become Christians. And preaching Christ is going to shape those of you that are Christians that are growing as disciples. That the, that the gospel converts you, the gospel shapes you, and it's more, again, than just here's 10 steps to a better you, but that you become gospel-shaped Christians 
Right? When the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians who were way messed up. I mean, they are messed up. Gentile converts. They got so much baggage. And he says to them in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hear what he's saying? We preached Christ, not Christ the good teacher, Christ crucified, right? And, and he's not just saying we preached formal sermons, okay? So when you hear the word preach, a lot of times you think about what I'm doing right now, standing in front of a group and preaching. But, but it's, it's more than that. It includes that, but it, it's more than that. So preaching, uh, it speaks to both the intellect and the affections, Right? It's not just it's not something that you think about in your head. Teaching can tend to be more intellectual, but, but preaching, it affects both your intellect, but then your affections, and it shows the relevancy of the gospel to particular topics. Preaching should be, it should be applicable. You should walk out of here thinking, I, I know how to take that sermon and do something with it as I go out of this place. It's not, hadn't been real preaching if, if you had, don't have that sense. And so as, as we're talking to people, we want to be preachers. Not just teachers. Your friend who is trying to figure out the gospel or trying to figure out their lives, uh, they, they don't probably need a teaching lecture on systematic theology. They need a preacher. They need someone to give them intellectual content, but also to speak to their affections and show the relevancy of the gospel to whatever the situation is they're struggling with. So if they're struggling with relationships, you're talking to them about relationships, and you're saying, you know, the gospel really applies to this in this way, like a good preacher. Or they're struggling with money and, and, and they don't know how they're going to you know, make it next month or whatever. You, you're, you're showing how the gospel applies to that struggle in a relevant way. Right? They're, they're discouraged, they're depressed. Whatever the, the situation is, you're, you're a good preacher. You're, you're, you're showing the relevancy of the gospel for that particular. And you think about your own story, how you became a Christian. Like, like it was probably some specific thing you were struggling with and, and somehow either in a setting like this or a conversation with a friend or some kind of combination of that, that you realize, wow, the gospel's relevant for my life now. And it was that that God used to bring you to faith in Christ and to, to, to convert you to be a Christian. So that's the making of the movement so far. We're ordinary witnesses, we're spirit-filled, and we're preaching Christ. But what else? Verse 25 so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that cool? That's a cool little trivia there. First time people were called Christians. They were called that in Antioch. They were so Christ-centered, people started calling them little Christs. That's what Christian means, little Christ. We don't think it was a positive term. <laughs> we think it was probably a disparaging term. And they're like, you little Christs, you're talking about Jesus all the time, focused on Jesus. Well, but they went ahead and embraced it. I think they were also not sure where to, how to categorize them because they couldn't say, well, this is just the Jewish sect because there was Jews and there was non-Jews and they were all like one people. And like, what do we call you? Your religion doesn't seem to be connected directly to your culture. Like, what? What is this thing that's coming out of this? And so they had to come up with a new term. And so they called them Christians. 
What we do see here, uh, in addition, we see another truth regarding the making of a movement. We see Barnabas especially being a multiplier, a multiplier. So what I mean by that, he's not just growing the church by addition. So like, let's say Barnabas comes in there and there's 40 people and he preaches and teaches and works with people and they grow to 45. And he's like, well, right, we're 45 people now. And then he works hard and he preaches and teaches some more and they grow to 50. Woohoo, we're 50. And he knew that 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 was going to wear out at some point, that he needed to bring somebody in to help him and to be a partner in the gospel ministry and to be a disciple maker. And so he goes and gets Saul of Tarsus. Now, he can't just call him up on the cell phone, right? Like, he just kind of knows that Saul's out there, and, and he knows that he's got some gifts. And, and so he, he leaves the church that's really going well, and he's like, I'll be back. And he runs to the Tarsus, and he gets Saul, and he brings Saul back. And he trains Saul, and he raises Saul up as a disciple maker. That was a pretty strategic move on his part. <laughs> the rest of Acts is pretty much going to be about Saul being one of the most important missionaries in the history of the church. We wouldn't have a Saul if we didn't have a Barnabas. He was a multiplier. Saul, who becomes Paul, uh, he gets this whole multiplication thing too. He writes to a young pastor, Timothy, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, What you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's talking to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, look, I want you to invest in some faithful folks that you know are going to turn around and then pour into others. He understood the need for multiplication. But again, we wouldn't have a Saul or Paul without Barnabas. Right? And so we begin to see this multiplication. And it's a, it's a slow grow. right? It's so much easier to try to do something really big and get a whole bunch of people in a room and go, wow, look, we're growing. But it, it, it feels really slow to, to start with one and then another and then another. But we'll see in a minute. It's, it has a multiplying effect. This is what should be happening in every church, including our church. We should be on this trajectory of, of maturation. That those that come in who I'm going to call are pre-Christians, right? They're new to, the, new to church, they're new to the Bible, new to faith, and they hear the gospel, and then usually it's a process, right? They hear some sermons, they talk to some friends, they read some books, and they come to a place where they say, no, I believe that, that Christ is who He said He is. He is this divine Savior, and that I need what He did on the cross to save me and to forgive me. And they receive that by faith. And then they move into the next phase of this maturation, which is the B phase, where they just learn how to be a disciple. They learn the basics of how to pray, how to read their Bibles, how, how to live in fellowship with other believers, how to, how to uh, be on, a, on the mission, of, of, which we'll talk more about, of making other disciples, and how to center all that on the worship of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. You move from being a disciple to learning how to make disciples. You're reaching out to other people and helping them either become Christians or you're helping baby Christians to grow in the basics of the faith. But then stop there. You would grow to be a part to the place of being a multiplier where you're investing in people and raising them up who can invest in other people and make disciples, be a maker of disciple makers, would be one way to think about it. This is this is my heart for this church. This is my heart for my own ministry. When I roll out of bed in the morning, this is what I'm thinking about. How can I do this? How can I do this better? How can I lead others to do this? I want to see people come into faith in Christ. 
I want to see people who have come to faith in Christ grow in the basics of the discipleship. I want to see those that know the basics to grow in the making of disciples. And I want to see more people multipliers. Not just the professional Christians. Not just the staff and elders and a few key leaders, but, but ordinary Christians. That's how this thing becomes a movement. That's how we move from, star, from, from, uh, uh, from spider to starfish, right? Is if I'd, I dropped you somewhere in, in a place where you didn't have church, you would know how to start from scratch, lead some people to Jesus, and teach them the basics, and go. Right? I had this fun conversation with my son who just graduated from college. He got a job. He works in Austin, Texas for Oracle, and they had this little Bible study going on that he became a part of, and then by God's providence, the thing started to grow and a couple of weeks ago, they had like 50 people showing up for this Bible study. And it, so it's turned into kind of this little church in, in Oracle. And they needed someone to lead it and be kind of the overseer of it. And they asked my son, Corey, to do that. And he called me and he was so excited. And he's like, Dad, I can't believe this. This stuff that I've learned in my family, in my church, at school, when I was working in camp, like God's brought all this together and I get to be a part of the movement, right? He didn't say the word movement, but that's what it is. He's planting it at Oracle in Austin, Texas, right? And so th- th- this is how this thing grows exponentially, is if ordinary Christians move in maturation toward being disciple makers and multipliers, you may hear that, you may think, well, I'm just not into that. Well, God's into that. God's into that. I mean, if you're a Christian and you're, you're coming to this church and you're thinking, I just want a nice place to hear sermons and hear some good music, sing some, some songs, and that's all I'm looking for, you're at the wrong church. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're exploring this, we're really glad you're here. And, but I, you, you do need to know what you'll be signing up for if you become a Christian. <laughs> but this is what we're about. We want to see people made disciples and people able to make disciple makers. And this is not something that happens overnight, okay? This is, this is slow growth stuff. But just know, this is, this is where we're pushing. This is where we're praying towards. This is where uh, when we think about why are we doing small groups? Why are we doing these events? This is what we're thinking about. How do we help people mature in the basics of discipleship and making disciples and becoming multipliers? So think about your own self. Where are you on that trajectory? Are you a pre? Perhaps this morning you can move to a B. You may be at a place where you're like, I think I understand the gospel well enough that I'm ready to receive what Christ has done for me on the cross by faith. I want to be forgiven. I want to enter into this relationship. I want to be a part of this movement. It may be that you're a bee. And you're like, you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm not practicing the basics. I need to grow in my prayer life. I need to grow in my... And of course, we all need to grow, right? But for some of you, I know you, you haven't even begun. You're really not reading the scripture. You're not praying. You come on Sunday, and, and you may go to a campus ministry event or some, you know, listen to a podcast here or there, but you've yet to really become a practitioner of the basic devotions of, of, a, of a Christian. You cannot make disciples until you do that, until you actually practice these things. 
And maybe you're practicing these things. You're like, well, I, I want to move to the next part. I, I want to make disciples. I, I want to reach out to my friends at work and tell them about Jesus. I want to help a young believer get established in the basics. So you may be at that place. Or you may be a place where you're like, you know what? I have done that. I, I, I've, I've been established in the basics. I have influenced some other folks that have been growing in Christ. I want to be a multiplier. I want to help raise up people that could pour in to others in an exponential way. This is ex- exciting when you think about uh, the difference between addition and multiplication, right? I know it's pretty simple math, but um, think about this. This chart, uh, the, what, what this is describing is if someone, you know, let, let, let's say um, Ashley made a disciple, one disciple every day, every day. So 365 disciples per year. That'd be pretty good. That'd be really good. Anybody could do it. Ashley probably could. So, so she makes 365 this year, 730 next year. And in, at year 16, she's made 5,840 disciples, one a day, right? Well done. She'd be pretty exhausted. I, I don't think she'd be in too good shape. But, but if Ashley was a multiplier instead, if, if she spent one year raising up one disciple, who the next year could then raise up one disciple while she raised up a second disciple, they'd move from two to four, which feels very slow, but then the next year, it's, it's 16. And, it, and by the time you get to, 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 to 16, the, the 16th year, you've got over 65,000 disciple makers, right? So this, this is what Jesus had in mind when he's saying, go make disciples. He didn't just say, go make converts, right? Gather people in a room, preach the gospel. People say, yeah, yeah, me too. I want to sign up, kind of like we're signing up for Amazon Prime. And then we move on. But, but to establish them, to teach them to obey everything that he's commanded, right? And then they would pass that on to someone else and someone else and someone else. This becomes a movement when ordinary Christians are embracing that vision. You may be thinking to yourself, I want that. <laughs> I want to grow in that. Some of you have been growing. This semester, I've had a, a small group called Be, Make, Multiply. Oh, I wonder what they talked about. We talked about this stuff, and about 15 folks came to my house every Wednesday, and we prayed, and we learned, and we read books, and, and we sought to practice these things. So I know there's a hunger out there for this, but know that we're going to continue to offer things that are going to help you be trained to be and to make and to multiply, and I'll talk more about that toward the end. So, so far, making of a movement, ordinary Christians, full of the Holy Spirit, preaching Jesus, multiplying disciples. The fifth thing, we have to go to Acts 13 for this one, so go over a couple of chapters. 13.1, now there were in the church of, at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. So some more truths in here about the making of a movement. And another one, a fifth one, is pray. You're not going to have a movement if you don't pray. And so the, these folks are, are, are crying out to God. This is such a beautiful thing. These, these people have been a Christian for, you know, one year. And they're fasting, and they're praying, and they're asking the Lord, what do you want from us? 
We are yielded to your Holy Spirit. What do you want? We'll do anything. And God says, I want you to send out your A-team. I want you to send out the two guys that came and congregationalized you and taught you all the basics and taught you what to do to make disciples and be multipliers. I, I want you to send those guys out. And it's a real contrast to how people are sent out of the church of Jerusalem. People are sent out of the church of Jerusalem are running for their lives because of persecution. The people that are sent out from Antioch are having a prayer meeting, hearing from the Holy Spirit and obeying. We want to be in Antioch. We want to be in Antioch. And you can't be in Antioch if you don't pray. Never before have we prayed as much as we do right now. It's really a, a move of God's Spirit. And, and these things that are, are filled out each week, these prayer requests, they get prayed over every week, every week, every week. I think that's part of what we see God working is, is the answer to these prayers. We will also see more people than ever coming to our, our prayer meetings. We do this once, once a month. We gather and we pray. This past uh, one we fasted before, seeing God at work. We're not going to see God move in a significant way if if we don't pray. And, and I talked about this last week, so I won't talk about it too much, but you know, the way that they were praying was fervent, it was persistent, it was corporate. It wasn't just this uh, single solitary Christians in their individual homes praying, although that's important, but they also came together corporately and they prayed together. That was part, that's part of the making of a movement. We also see here that people are willing to go where they're sent. That when the Lord says sin, they, they do it. No matter how difficult that assignment is, no matter how risky that is. Right? I was on the, the phone uh, a week ago with Krista Webb. Krista Webb sensed the call to go and live in one of the poorest regions on the planet in the Dominican Republic, uh, Las Melvinas. It's a little community, in, it's, it's part of um, um, Santo Domingo. And she's plopped down in that community, and she's living there with the people. She's not living in a, like a, a, a nice, safe home during the day and you know, at, at night and then coming in during the day and serving the poor. She's living among them. It, it's a sight to behold. She has gone where she's sent, and she's willing to risk and willing to do whatever it takes to do that. There's also sacrifice on the, on the, on the, the, uh, the, for, for the church that's sending them out. I mean, think about this. These, these leaders in Antioch are praying, God, we'll do anything, we'll do anything. Well, send out Saul and Barnabas. That's not what we had in mind. <laughs> but they do it. They send those who go. And they pray for them, and they support them. And Antioch becomes this home base for, for Paul and his ministry. They get the privilege of being the sending church of the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? When, when these that, we hardly even know any of their names, they get to stand before Jesus, and Jesus goes, you know what? That, well done! Well done because of you. Your willingness to send the Apostle Paul and Barnabas out. We, we get this mission movement that reaches in this very sanctuary today. This gospel that we know is in part because of that sending church. And so this is, this is part of... The making of, of, of the movement is, is not just going when you're sent, but sending those who go. 
sending them well, praying for them, supporting them, doing what we can at home base to make sure that they're cared for and resourced. We want to be an Antioch. In many ways, we are Antioch by default. I mean, we just saw the folks that are being sent out, right? Every May, people graduate, they go out, and, and they bring the gospel wherever they go. And they're going to go to all kinds of different cities and nations. Uh, some stay around, but, but honestly, a lot of them are going to go somewhere else. And, and it's, it's a bittersweet thing. Like, it's hard to say goodbye to people that we've done life with. Some, some for, for, if they're PhD students, a long time. Right? And, and then to see them go and to bring the gospel to other places. Is a, that's a real privilege for us as a church. Uh, but then also to see many, many people going out on short-term mission and being able to participate in that, to give money toward that, to pray for those folks. This, this is a, an incredible honor for us as a church. So the seven truths that we've talked about, ordinary Christians full of the Holy Spirit, preaching Jesus, multiplying disciples, praying, going where they're sent, and sending those who go. So I want to challenge you. Take your card out, your little connection card that you got on your seat. You don't have to do this. I can't make you do this, but I, I want to encourage you to do this. In the comment section, I want you to tell me where you think you are in this journey. Are you a pre this morning? I mean, I want to encourage you to become a Christian this morning and move over into the B, but, but if you're like, no, you know what? I'm, I'm just starting this. I'm exploring this. I'm a, I'm a pre. I'm just getting started, right? Or you're a B. You're like, no, I am a Christian, but I have I'm not established yet in the basics. And I could I could use help with that. I, I could use a book that could help me with that. I, I could use some encouragement in that area. I, I want to be a disciple. Or maybe you're a make. Like, you know what? I'm established in the basics, but I want to make Disciples, I'm not quite sure what to do in that regard. I could use some help and some encouragement or multiply. Perhaps you've made a disciple or two, and you're like, I'd like to step that up, and I, I want to be like Barnabas, and I want to go train a Saul and, and, and turn them loose to be disciple makers too. And partly why I want to see this, I want to see where you think you are in that process. I'm also going to have some, some books available next week some summer reading for some of you that I know are, are heading out of here, and they will help you in accordance with where you think you are, right? And so when, when we look at these, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll buy some books this week, and we'll put those out um, next Sunday. What you could also put in there, if you're like, I want to I multiply disciple makers, is an interest in being an intern on our staff. Um, and so... Oftentimes, students that sometimes are juniors, seniors, you don't, you don't have to be a junior or senior, but sometimes they would serve on our staff for a few hours a week as a disciple maker. And this is what, you know, staff is, this is what we're thinking about. This is what we're praying about. We're reading books about. We're training for. And, and so if you're like, man, I want to grow as a disciple maker, especially a multiplier, uh, this would be one context where you could learn to do that. Not the only context, obviously, but if you're interested in that, write internship. We'll reach out to you, and we'll t talk more about what that might entail. This kind of ministry, to me, is, is so life-giving. It's so life-giving. This uh, picture that I, I brought with me today um, is 
uh, of a, a, I was on a fundraising trip. This is in Oklahoma, and uh, I usually stay with the Westbrooks, and the Westbrooks are uh, the older couple there, and uh, Tom was my college pastor. And so when I met Tom, I was a Christian, but that was it. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to read my Bible. And he helped establish me in the basics of my faith. Then he taught me how to make disciples. Then he taught me how to be a multiplier. And so I'm forever grateful uh, for the, the, what he poured in to me when I was a college student. And this was a fun time because I, I brought Gregory on the right there and Mike Daling there in the purple shirt with me on that trip. And so Gregory on the right, he was an Amherst College student who had just graduated at that time. And he had become a Christian in this church. And he learned about the basics. He learned how to make disciples. And he had influenced Mike Daling, who came to this church, a Christian, but kind of like I was when I went to college, didn't know anything, didn't know how to, how to be a Christian, didn't know how to, to, to pray, didn't know how to read his Bible. And Gregory spent a lot of time with Mike Daling, helping establish him as a disciple of Jesus. Then Mike Daling started pouring in to people here at, at, at UMass especially. And then when he graduated, one of the first phone calls I got from Mike was when he was at work, the first day at work, and he, and he was in his little cubicle, and he started talking to the person on his right and the person on his left, and like the person on the right started talking to him about the gospel and asking questions and was interested in knowing more. The person on the left said, oh, I just became a Christian. I don't know anything about how to be a Christ follower. Would you help me? So day one, Mike Daling was sharing the gospel with one person on the right and helping a new baby believer figure out the basics on his left. Right? That's multiplication. Multiplication. And this is not something just for the pastor to be a part of. This is something for every Christian to be a part of. And again, so life-giving. Don't, don't settle for churchianity, please. Just coming to church, being a good person, pursuing the American dream. No, leverage your life for disciple-making. There's nothing like it. So rich. And I, I just, I long for that, for, for so many in the church to, to be able to participate in it. And, and of course, someone who is doing this full-time, like, yes, we're going to be able to have more time to do this kind of work. But, but, but just one, right? Just one to pour into, to, to lead to Christ, to, to, to help establish in the basis of, the, of, of discipleship. You can do that. You can do that. And it is so life-giving to you, and it's so life-giving to those that you influence. And I think once you do it, you'll, you'll be addicted to it. You, just won't, you won't be able to get enough of it because you'll see the life change that occurs. And you, like Barnabas, will have great joy as you see what God is doing in people's lives. We, we want to do this because of really the epicenter of our faith, which is Jesus Christ, right? Because of what this supper causes us to remember, that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Partly what Jesus was saying when he says new covenant, 
is that this thing is going from being a centralized covenant that's centralized on Israel and centralized on the temple and the sacrificial system to being a decentralized movement whereby any group of Christians with a Bible can, can break bread and take the cup and self-identify as a church and boom, you got a church. You don't need a temple. You don't need a geopolitical unit of Israel. You need brothers and sisters in Christ who commit themselves to God's word and take the bread and the cup as a sign of the covenant community. And we can drop you down in the middle of, of Pakistan or Canada or China, wherever, and, and you can be church, you can be part of the movement. And the reason we want, we want to, to, to be a part of that movement is because of this good news of the gospel. Why would we want to keep that to ourselves? I was talking to Elias, who I, I, was, I was actually sharing his story about being in... There he is right there. Nice timing, Elias. Thanks, man. About come, you know, finding Jesus in a drug detox. I have permission to share this. Drug detox, detox center and being completely set free. He's, he's like, I totally want to tell other people about that. How could I not? Right? So it's not like some sort of pyramid scheme, some kind of corporate strategy. Like, like this is the best news ever. And, and we want to commend that to as many people as we possibly can. And we're not going to do that with some kind of a, an, an addition. We're going to need a multiplication. And we want that to multiply out into these campuses, to this community, to this state, to this country, to every nation in the world. And that... That job has not yet been done. And I think, millennials, you can finish this up. Never have we had this kind of technology and this kind of world travel and this, this kind of, of c capacity to, to communicate the truth than we do right now. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. You've called us, not, not just a, a life-changing relationship with you, which is amazing, but to be on a life-changing mission with you to make disciples of others. God, thank you for giving us a front-row seat to see people's lives completely and utterly transformed, that we, like Barnabas, get to enter into your joy as we see people changed and transformed. God, thank you. Thank you that you do this in this church, that we'll see people going through the waters of baptism next week, that, that we'll, we'll be celebrating this new life that you've given them by the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. And so, Lord, would you draw even, even today men and women here in this room who are trusting you for the first time for forgiveness and transformation, that they would become Christ's followers. But for the rest of us, Lord, who are your followers, Lord, help us to grow. Help us to mature, to move from basic practices to being disciple makers and even multipliers, Lord. May this church be a part of your movement, of, of your spirit. And we just we give you thanks and praise for what you've done and what you will do. We also, God, center ourselves on your gospel this morning, Lord. We know this is why any of this even matters because of the best news ever, God, that you have died in our place, resurrected from the dead, 
ascended to the right hand of the Father and will return as the reigning king over everything seen and unseen. And we celebrate that today, Lord, as we take the bread and the cup. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.